Hi everyone. Amid the tragedy of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, governments are trying this week to cut dependence on Russian oil and gas, targeting what President Joe Biden called the main artery of the Russian economy. And this could be great for the environment and the goals of the Paris Agreement if it accelerates the shift to renewable energies, solar, wind, geothermal or wave power. But it will be terrible if other countries merely develop new fossil fuel reserves at home and lock our dependence on oil and coal and natural gas. So we're facing what some people are calling the first net zero energy crisis as the world tries to limit global warming under the Paris Agreement by shifting the global economy away from its addiction to fossil fuels. So we see now that energy prices have soared with wild swings this week because of the invasion. So Brent Cruel, for instance, hit almost $140 a barrel this week, and that's the highest in more than 10 years. And it then dropped back to about 115 a barrel, uh, but it, it's, it's down from, from highs and hopes that other suppliers could fill in the gap. So it's, it's causing havoc uh, for everyone, uh, it's for businesses trying to keep down costs to ordinary people wanting to keep their homes warm. And that calls for all kinds of new challenges for governments to deal with this. So here in Ontario, for instance, we saw that the cost of gas is jumping 24 cents per liter. But I guess, Alistair, for your experience in Norway, it must be much, much worse. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that sounds cheap from seen from over here, over in Oslo, where I live. Gasoline prices are among the highest in the world, even though Norway is a big uh, exporter of oil. Uh, they've been around the equivalent of $2.75 a litre this week. That would be a little bit more than $10 a gallon in the, in the United States. That's about double what I think the prices are there at the moment. Wow, yeah. Um, it's huge taxes on it. Um, Always a big oil exporter, but uh, you know the huge taxes stick stick the prices up really high. So yeah, as you were saying, we've got this dilemma about uh, do we shift to green greener energy or do we push for push for more oil? And in the United States, by Joe Biden, President Joe, Joe Biden announced on Tuesday that the United States is banning imports of Russian oil, gas, and coal to deliver another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. I noticed in that speech he didn't refer to Putin as Russia's president, just Putin all the way through. And he called him a tyrant, um, but not president. Uh, uh, you could see the tension here between there's a short-term goal of boosting energy production to hit Russia and the longer-term goal of shifting to renewables in, in his very remarks there. On the one hand, he said there's 9,000 permits to drill, drill for oil now in the United States, but the oil and gas industry just aren't using them. At the same time, he says that the war should motivate us to accelerate the transition to clean energy. And he quote, to quote him, this is a perspective that our European allies share and a future where together we can achieve greater energy, greater independence. And then he went on, if we can, if we can do what we, if we can, if we do what we can, it will mean that no one has to worry about the price of gas, of the gas pump in the future. That'll mean tyrants like Putin won't be able to use fossil fuels as weapons against other nations. And you see on Twitter a whole load of memes going around. There's one that I saw today that's a, a picture of send Putin away, get a heat pump today. <laughs> Lots of people encouraging 
domestic action. So, you know, Biden acknowledges in his speech that it's easier for the United States to ban energy imports from Russia than for many European nations, which, of course, depend very heavily on Russian gas and oil. And the U.S. is a net energy exporter. It's gained that Yeah, action. and the U.S. imports only, I believe, 3% of their oil from, from Russia. I also saw another yeah. meme today passing by on Twitter and so it sounds like uh, the price of wind energy soared 0.0% uh, since the invasion in Ukraine. And that is, of, of course, a reminder of where the ultimate uh, solution for our energy dependence lies. But it's, it's, it's amazing how in just two weeks' time, uh, the world, it's, it's, yeah, it's really two weeks now, how in two weeks' time, the, the world is three weeks. What are we talking about? But in just a few weeks' time, how the world has changed in so many aspects. I mean, from the point of international uh, law, from from the point of human rights, from uh, a point of view of dependencies between countries, from the point of view of uh, building an international coalition for, or from uh, support for more uh, defense uh, spendings. It's it's. Massive changes all around, and it is um, on on the one hand there's the there's the absolute brutality and 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 the horror that we read about, and there's another way of looking at it, uh, and it's it, it all comes at the same time. But for me, as somebody who has worked as a diplomat, that seeing so many developments in just a few weeks' time, all together, all impacting each other, is 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 amazing, and and I haven't seen that in in, in many decades. Mm-hmm. So you you see, for instance, as one story, that the European Union now laid out its plans just just two days ago uh, to plan to make Europe independent from Russian fossil fuel well before 2030, and starting with gas. And the European Commission says that the plan um, uh, known as uh, Rep uh, Power EU uh, aims to diversify gas supplies, speed up the rollout of renewable gases and replace gas in heating and power generation. And this can reduce EU demand for Russian gas by two thirds before the end of the year. But the problem for the EU is that it is so heavily dependent on Russia. The EU import, uh, imports 90% of its its gas consumption, and and out of the and and uh, Russia is providing around 45% of all those imports. Uh, Russia also accounts for about 25% of oil and about 45% of the coal imports. So we have a heavily uh, dependent system on imports from Russia which we always knew and which we always spoke about uh, and which was also often used as an argument when we spoke about investing more in renewable energies, but it was never really taken as serious and with the urgency um, as we have done now, which is another good lesson learned that uh, long-term problems become an urgent problem if you don't tackle them. And that's something that I wrote about in, in my newsletter recently. So the, the EU plan portrays now the war as a spur to, to drastically accelerate the clean energy transition. And it wants the EU to diversify gas supplies uh, via higher liquefied natural gas, so LNG, uh, pipeline import from non-Russian suppliers, 
and shifting to biomethane and hydro, hydrogen imports and, and production. And at the same time, it calls for faster cuts in the use of fossil fuels by boosting energy efficiency in homes, in the industry, in building and increasing renewables and electrification. And my personal opinion here is that since all of this takes a lot of time, and I think this this idea of, of cutting for two, two-thirds the dependence before the end of the year is by this is said by experts, and I'm not an expert here, but I think that is extremely positively uh, thought that that would be possible. But I think the, the best way to move forward in the very short term is to look really carefully at where can we, can we uh, reduce uh, the use of fossil fuels at the moment, because that is often easier than completely changing the system, which we should do with the utmost urgency, but it cannot be done overnight. So we have to, this is a war on all fronts uh, of of uh, of getting this independence from energy. And I'm, I fear that in the short term, uh, more fossil fuels will be used to make it possible to, to keep energy uh, energy up. And, and, and then uh, we should, as soon as possible, uh, get in... Um, uh, the the impact of having more uh, renewables. What do you think, Alistair? Yeah, it's an incredible, it's an incredible tangled problem here, isn't it? That we've got the goals of the Paris Agreement to halve our emissions in a decade, um, colliding with this crisis in in the invasion of Ukraine, um, meaning that everybody wants to suddenly shift back to to extend the oil and gas production at home and so on. It's just everything's colliding you know we're nowhere on target for the goals of the paris agreement and of course you know the virtual pretty much doubling of oil prices this year almost um means that russia can get away with selling half the amount and still earn the same same amount of um foreign currency can't it yeah so but but as you said the sh- things have shifted so radically just this week i mean shell apologized the other day for buying russian oil can you imagine yeah, yeah. well, they had to. It was a very strange situation, pumping out that, that you mean there's one tanker of oil yeah, that they were... Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. 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 It was yeah. a very... They said it was a very difficult decision when they did it, didn't they? But uh, uh, they yeah. turned around and apologized pretty quickly. I yeah. guess, luckily, we you know, the winters... Well, it's pretty cold here in Europe still. Um, it's below freezing, and you see pictures from Ukraine where it's snowing, don't you? But, uh, um, poor people, yeah. It must be desperate times. And, but uh, the uh, winter is coming to an end, and, of course, that reduces the amount needed for, um, for, for, for heating, I guess. But, yeah. you know, we've, we've got this, you know, the turmoil in this energy market shows, you know, it's, it's, it's an opportunity, like you say. You know, wind power prices haven't increased <laughs> yeah. because of this invasion. Uh, and so, you know, the world has this chance to seize this opportunity to get on track for cutting emissions, as we've, as everybody's talked about for so long, without really doing it. The trouble is that, you know, the world's track track record of really seizing moments like this hasn't been hasn't been wonderful. You know, we we were told that um, we'd all build back better and have green new deals after the COVID pandemic. Um, but there's this, there's this study I was looking at in the journal Nature by experts at Johns Hopkins University in the U.S. showing that, you know, that build back better hasn't been happening. Um, they found that in the last two years, the G20 group of the world's largest economies spent at least $14 trillion. That's almost the same as China's annual GDP 
on recovery packages. And much of that spending, of course, rightly went to shoring up the healthcare systems, wages, welfare. But, but, every, but climate action was promised as well as part of these packages. It was always build back better. But they found that only 6% of this $14 trillion of the total stimulus spending, that's just short, well, it's $860 billion, has been allocated to areas that will also cut emissions such as you know, electrifying vehicles, making buildings more energy efficient, you know, insulator, insulation and, and installing renewables. So it's kind of, that's a missed opportunity. And then you know, they found also that 3% of this stimulus funding has gone to um, activities like subsidies for the coal industry. It will make matters worse. So let's just hope that you know, we, this, this Russian invasion wakes us up, as it has done to many countries yeah. in the West, uh, outside Russia, and, and shakes us out of this torpor where we're, we're not really allocating money in the right way. Yeah, I was, I was just, last night I started writing an article for, for my Substack newsletter, but I, I couldn't finish, I was just getting too tired. But um, the idea there is, is, is very much about what you just mentioned, that we, that we don't get into action. But the way that I see it is that Democracies are inherently slow in taking decisions. We often take the right decisions, but we, we we need a lot of time to get there because we need consensus and there's a lot of people are involved, etc. But if you look throughout history, you see that you can you can push a democracy and you can bully them and you can make you can make life difficult. You can do that over and over again. Until you reach the point, a kind of kind of point of no return, a kind of kind of breaking point. And once you pass that, and a democracy puts all its its might and intelligence and economy to a dedicated goal, then they can perform miracles. And if you if you look in the history, I mean, look at look at what Hitler was doing in in you know first the Rhineland occupation or the military militarization, I should say, and then. Then, then Sudetenland and, and uh, Czechoslovakia and and then and all the time we said no no you you're not allowed to do that Hitler and Hitler said basically like you know it uh, I just keep on going and then he invaded Poland and then was okay but this means war and then finally um, uh, when that happened we we started mobilizing producing etc and uh, even more remarkable is if, if you take 7 December 1941 where um, Japan had already invaded Manchuria and uh, and were absolutely doing horrible things there and then they, they invaded further into China and then America only did some oil boycotts and then Japan went further and uh, and and and, uh, and bombarded Pearl Harbor. And at that moment, if you then look at America, that all the time had been reluctant to really take measures, immediately they switched switch to a war economy. And then see what happened. Im- immensely uh, creative new developments in, in, in technology, in organizing the economy, etc. And that is uh, that may have been the case here as well. We've been way too slow in taking action on renewables we've been way too slow in really reacting to putin when he stole the crim and when he 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 stole the the southeastern part of 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 uh of ukraine 
but this is a triggering point where we're all united and we're 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 willing to change things and that may also impact um the um uh, the the whole infrastructure uh, economy and yeah we have now this dual goal of getting both energy independence as well as um uh, as 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 well as fulfilling uh, the Paris agreements, it's a huge challenge. We're too late, but I I I see a lot of things moving now. So this this post twenty four February world asks for an enormous amount of rethinking how how we have organized our economies and our society and our security. So um, okay, give me two, give me a few more minutes for a bit of monologue here in in. If yeah. I want to mention two two things here. So first of all, if we want to ease this this current energy burden which we're dealing with, one of the many problems that 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 we are dealing with uh, is we need a lot of subsidies because inequality is rising because the the people in Europe that earn less money spend a higher amount of their household on uh, on heating their houses. Uh, and so they are uh, they are victimized more by the higher energy prices than the richer people. So European governments have now reacted by putting in place an enormous amount of energy subsidies. Uh, it's it's some fifteen billion euros, and uh, uh, so that's in, in in dollars. That's seventeen billion dollars uh, in France, and then five billion in Italy, and then another two billion in Poland, and it, it goes on and on. And these target the low-income households, which I believe, although I always have campaigned against subsidies on on fossil fuels, I think right at this moment, uh, this is the right thing to do to support low-income households as long as it's a temporary measure. But um, we we might may also see that there um, uh, there's that that we will get to the limits of Western resilience. Uh, so. Um, we really have to re-engineer the infrastructure for importing gas and uh, and do the fastest shift possible to renewable energy. We have now two reasons, both the climate as well as our our energy independence. And it's it's possible, but it's very costly. And the 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 time limits we have, of course, is the next winter that is that is coming. This this started basically at the end of the winter. But it will get cold again, and that is in 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 the terms of building such a new infrastructure it takes a lot of time. So the economic shocks um, will soon be visible as much more than the heating cost and the driving cost. That is that is basically what people are talking about now. But of course, industries also need um, uh, fossil fuels. Uh, or other forms of energy. And they are already showing some signs of slowing production because energy is becoming so expensive. So, and also keep in mind there that that a lot of other resources like uh, copper and and other uh, uh, industrial materials uh, are also being produced in Russia. So this is bound to have an impact that goes, uh, goes much further than just energy and the second thought that i would i would like to share here is a much more strategic long-term one and and i i wrote about this already um about a week ago but uh germany relies even more than the average european country on on 
uh, on ga- on Russia for its gas imports is 56% of its gas imports uh, and about half of its its hard coal and about 30% of its its oil imports um are are all coming from Germany and Germany is the economic powerhouse of Europe so this dependency goes even further um and this is the thing that was hardly mentioned in in the mainstream media just because so much is going on at the moment that that journalists cannot cover everything but uh, more than a third of the gas storage facilities in Germany are in the hands of a subsidiary of Gazprom mm-hmm. uh, which which is the 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 mostly state-owned uh, multinational energy corporation of Russia so uh, imagine this Russia is is owning more than a third of the strategic gas reserves facilities in Germany. And so it was Deutsche Welle that reported that um, all these uh, sites have one thing in common. Somehow, miraculously, just before the invasion of Ukraine, when Germany needed a maximum amount of gas in their gas storage to have some kind of independence of of Russian energy supplies, all of them were at levels at less than 10% of capacity. And of course, the German Minister for Economy and Climate, who's actually from the Green Party, Robert Habeck, he uh, assumes that the storage facilities have been systematically emptied intentionally to both drive up gas prices and to generate political pressure. Um, it's it's this was reported in Germany, but I I didn't see it anywhere else in the in the international press. And I I I believe it is an important story. But if we put this in the bigger picture, uh, we allowed Russia, so a, a state-owned company, to own more than a third of the very strategic asset in Germany. Now. Add to that that there's no law in Germany that stipulates how much these should be filled. And so you can't even blame Gazprom for doing this because they haven't broken any law. There's a law for oil on the amount of oil that should be in strategic reserves because we had an oil crisis twice in the 1970s. But we never had a gas crisis. Nobody ever thought about it. So it went unnoticed and unchallenged uh, that Russia could do all this. And... Uh, so this strategically weakening is is a very important point uh, for the future. And I think this calls for a strategic review of the foreign ownership of strategic assets. And that should go further than just Russia and just Germany and just, uh, just energy. You have to also have to think about seaports and energy and water and food and all kinds of critical infrastructure. So sorry for this long rant, but these were just some ideas that I've been working on in, in, in past uh, days and uh, back to you Alistair. No no those are really good points um, I was just looking up now while you were talking about the the gas storage in Germany I see that the commission's the European Commission's plan says that um, their goal as part of this um, shift away from dependence on Russia is that by the 1st of October gas storage in the EU has to be filled up to at least 90% um, so you know we'll be in theory ready for the winter with any luck um, when it comes around, but uh, you're right. This this war has just suddenly, in the last you know, days, forced us to rethink the whole world order, hasn't it? It's a tragedy for for everybody in Ukraine. Horrific suffering there, and you know it's it's made us rethink a lot of the assumptions we took for granted 
but still, it's a wake-up call, isn't it? In many ways, you know, look at the Ukrainian resistance to Russia, led by President Volodymyr Zelensky. He's been a beacon to my to my mind for overturning what you know experts as always predict is going to happen. Um, Putin must have been shocked by the Ukrainians who obliterated the idea that mighty Russia would just roll in and beat them into submission. Um, so, you know, he's shown we have a chance to overturn the established order, including this fossil fuel dominance if we want to, if we really seize the chance now. Um, but it's, of course, going to be really, really difficult. As you've said, it's going to take a whole lot of shifts in, in, the, in the world economy. Um, yeah. I wonder, I, I see all kinds of people listening. So if, if uh, people that are listening have comments or, or questions, just, uh, oh, I see already um, Evelyn joining in. Uh, shall we go, go to a question uh, yeah. for a moment? Sure. Um, so Evelyn, please uh, join and unmute. Yes, hi. Um, I was just hi. wondering, um, you know, do you think it, we're we're at a point where where we'll, we'll uh, where we will see those changes that you were mentioning because um, as you know I'm I'm Swiss and what you said about democracies moving slow and all that that really rang true for me because we have to vote on everything right mm -hmm. so I don't see I don't see how that can uh, cha changes can be implemented fast enough right now and from what I from what I see and hear around here, I don't think we're at the point in Switzerland where we really see that we have to change something. Yes, people complain about higher prices when they get when they fill up their cars, but I'm I'm not sure we're quite there yet. I was just wondering if if you think we are or what more needs to happen because to me, I mean this is really you know we should get going, as you said. Well, one tremendous change that I already saw in, in, in your country is that Switzerland that is has been neutral for, what is it, 700 years or so, is uh, is has now clearly taken taken sides and is, is supporting uh, Ukraine is, if I'm not mistaken, even sending arms. Uh, I think that is already an enormous change. Um, but what do you think, Alistair, on, on a situation like this for, for Switzerland? Yeah, for Switzerland, for, for every... I mean, even great, great to hear your voice. Um, it's... Uh, is it going to happen? I, I, I really, really hope it, it is going to happen, that we're going to see this, this big sudden change in the world economy. I mean, I've been astonished by the speed that which has happened at the moment, but then... You know, in the U.S., you read that there's bipartisan support for um, for what President Biden is doing in banning oil imports. At the same time, you can be dead certain that the Republicans will blame Joe Biden for high gas prices in the end. So there's a there's a tightrope to be walked here, I think, to to ensure that we can we can maintain the momentum we've got on Russia and that and that the you know the focus remains in in the media on 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 what's happening. I turn on the television. Here in Norway, and what we'll watch the BBC News, and it's it's wall to wall. It's twenty four hours a day, um, and it's I think you get people on board with that as long as you can get the message across to enough people. Um, I, my my feeling is that yeah, we can we can do both these things: shift to 
shift to a, a cleaner future and and uh, and punish Russia at the same time uh, without increasing our dependence on, on domestically produced um, oil and gas. I don't know enough about Switzerland, I'm, af- I'm afraid, but mm. it's, uh, it's, things have changed there as well, haven't they? I think what uh, what Putin has achieved is something that we never achieved in the European un- Union, and that is unity. Uh, and so we needed an outside force to finally have an, an amount of unity in the European Union that is unthinkable. I said in an earlier podcast, one of our very first podcasts, I said I'm I, I'm the only person that I know of that is supporting the green left on everything and is also for uh, investing more money in defense. I'm no longer alone. And uh, so I, I thought that was, that was remarkable to see the support for, for higher defense spending now, which is in the EU at 69% now and was just a month ago uh, about 30%. So that is... Um, so we have uh, we have created a lot more uh, a lot more unity. Um, I I see uh, a few more callers. I'll go to uh, the next uh, caller, and um, that is Joshua. Hi, Joshua. Thanks for joining again. Hi, Joshua. Uh, you're welcome. And uh, you know, I just wanted to bring up quality of life indexes versus GDP as a measurement and potentially looking at slowing down the global economy to address climate change over the next two years. And is we're doing that, invest in infrastructure and regenerative technologies instead of the things that we've done that are non-regenerative and extractive? Yeah. Well, of course, GDP is, it's been heavily debated as a measure to uh, it, it is still most used as as the measurement of the success of an economy of a country, uh, but uh, that is that is ridiculous, of course, in all kinds of all kinds of reasons. Let's say uh, a truck drives over a bridge and the bridge collapses, and you have to build a new bridge, uh, th- then your GDP goes up. Whereas if the bridge would have been better built and you would have driven over it, and you could have done a lot more other activities. Um, it's it, the rebuilding of the bridge it would not be part of your of your uh, of your spending. So um, th- th- there's a lot of uh, things that are that are uh, not correct with GDP, especially also because it doesn't measure um, the inequality in a society and it doesn't measure the uh, the quality of of life. Nor does it uh, measure um, environmental costs. So let's say if you put up a factory uh, that is then uh, producing a lot of smoke that makes people sick, and therefore you have to build a hospital and you need to uh, hire all kinds of doctors to make these people better, your GDP is going up, but the quality of your country is going down. Um, so, so it's um, if we want to move to a society where people are people are happy and healthy and where we take care of the environment you need completely different um uh different uh, uh numbers different 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 units to 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 measure all that and i believe that uh well bhutan is world famous for uh, measuring their their global happiness product instead of the the gdp and I think in the uh, the latest uh, government of uh, New Zealand has also uh, so Jacinda Ahern, 
the prime minister has also said publicly when she when she uh, presented her new government, uh, she also said that uh, GDP should no longer be uh, the benchmark uh, for for measuring uh, the success of of what they are doing because uh, growth comes with a price and part of that price is um, is uh, is happiness is inequality is an environmental price. Um, and much more than, let's say, in the times of the Industrial Revolution, we're now confronted with all these problems. What do you think, Alistair? Yeah, it's, um, it's a great idea that uh, people are going to be, we're going to have to adjust our lifestyles um, to do this. I mean, there was just think, just a few months ago, people were talking about how this was going to be the roaring 20s, where after the pandemic, everybody's going to go splurging their money, traveling everywhere and uh, um, you know, spending lots and, and, and things. But, but now maybe, you know, we're going to have to cut that back, obviously. And, and with, with climate change, people talk about, of course, you know, flight shame, that people don't fly so much. Maybe if you took your holidays closer to home, you get used to that. That's a cut in your life, life standards as well. And, and as you were saying, Alex, you know, Bhutan has this gross national um, happiness index um, which is built around uh, psychological well-being, health, education, time use, factors like that. Like, like you're saying, you know, you could chop down all your forests in the Amazon and uh, sell all the trees and you'd have a massive boost to your GDP, but it's not a very sustainable way of living, is it? It's much better to be a steward of the forest and we just have to, I don't know, the goal is for the sustainable development goals is to, to, to living, living in harmony with nature, I think, is the best they've come up with isn't it and whether if that means you know you you set your paychecks less maybe people will be happier in the long run i hope <laughs> yeah i hope so too shall we shall we move i hope that answers your question question uh, joshua um so move to don let me see if i to speak um Oh, I moved. I moved you up. I should have put you next in line. So you're you're now officially a speaker, Don. Um, <laughs> uh, thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you. Um, interesting discussions in the light of events. Obviously, I'm wondering um, what the impact is going to be, or whether the uh, the major countries like Germany and, and France will will be backpedaling from the the denuclearization of their energy regimes, given the impact of the war and um, kind of the, the, the collapse in, not the collapse in, but the, the spikes in, in prices, energy prices, uh, because green wasn't kind of getting it done. Um, has there been talk of uh, Germany in particular spooling back up their, their nuclear facilities? Yeah, there's, there's certainly uh, talk about it. So these two countries are, uh, on their nuclear point of view, completely different. So France has already many decades ago uh, chosen for nuclear, uh, has done that uh, without any major incident, and a, a huge uh, part of their energy supply comes from from dozens and dozens. I, I'm, it's, I think it's like 50 or 80. I think it's more closer to 80. Um, uh, nuclear facilities uh, all over France, whereas in Germany they there has uh, there was already for decades much more opposition to nuclear, uh, but it was then triggered by the disaster in Fukushima that in in just uh, 
a few days time on just uh, as I remember reading on just like a one page memo uh, it was proposed to uh, completely uh, stop with using nuclear and they took that decision very rapidly to phase out all nuclear which meant from a climate point of view maybe not environmental point of view but a climate point of view an absolute disaster because uh, Germany started to use more coal and also increase more of its dependence on uh, on Russian gas. Um, and uh, although the story of the growth in renewables, especially solar in the south of Germany, if you, if you drive through there. In those days, I lived in, um, in Austria and I often drove from Austria to the Netherlands. And I just saw in a few years' time the enormous amount of solar panels that were built there. But then... The grid had problems in dealing with all that energy because you have completely different, you need a different energy grid uh, for dealing that. So that's the situation in Germany. And now this happened. Um, and uh, suddenly the most important thing that they need to have is to have enough energy and become independent of Russian gas as well as other fossil fuels from from, from Russia. And in that combination, um you need all the energy you can get. And that means that there is now a very serious debate uh, going on about um, uh, a few options. One is uh, uh, postponing the closure of the few facilities that are still functioning. And, and the other one is uh, maybe uh, take the ones that are no longer in use, maybe uh, start using those again. And yeah, it's 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 certainly an option. Um, my personal preference would have been um, in this situation, but who am I? I'm not a German, so I'm not in charge here. But I would say uh, this is so overwhelmingly important. Uh, first, uh, uh, get uh, get nuclear working again, so you you can get your independence from from Russia, of which we have no idea what the other plans are that Putin is coming up with. Uh, we don't even know if the conflict remains contained in, in Ukraine. So you need to get that independence first and foremost. And then you get a different debate that's already going on for, for a much longer time. Uh, what is what is the worst that we have at the moment? Is that burning fossil fuels that ruin the climate? Or is that nuclear that has a risk uh, and uh, that also produces uh, 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 nuclear material that we we don't know really how to how to uh, how to get rid of it so we store it deep in the ground um, my preference between those two is saying uh, use your nuclear uh, to to bridge the time until we can really move into into fossil in uh, into um, into renewables um and then yeah accepting that risk we can't live without risk we we we're much too late now was taking the right action so uh if i would be in germany i would say well um uh, uh, get uh, open them open them up again and uh, see it as a temporary thing because i'm not a fan of nuclear but there's not many options um where are you on this alistair yeah, I'm kind of on the fence on this one. I know, I, I, I think you're probably right that Germany, the phasing out of nuclear power at this moment is probably, is getting clearly a lot more difficult. You know, talking about building new nuclear power plants. I know in France, President Macron announced um, uh, just last month that they're going to build six 
new nuclear power reactors. But this is, of course, a really long-term thing. You can't just, in the same way as you, you can't just go out, like you can go in the North Sea and find a new gas field, and you can bring that on stream pretty quickly. A nuclear power plant is a long way down the long way down the line, and maybe it's, you know, maybe we're going to have to face that reality that yeah, you know, nuclear is going to have to be part of the options in the future as well. Um, you know, you've seen countries that countries have found it difficult to phase them out as well. In Sweden, next door to where I live, they had a referendum in the, back in 1980 where most people voted or plurality voted to phase out nuclear power, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, sorry, I think you were you were trying to jump in, Don. I, I was wondering, has there been talk in these uh, in in the European countries who are looking to either increase or 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 back off of the the phasing out of their nuclear? If they're looking at new facilities, is any are, are any of the discussions around um, some of the newer uh, uh, liquid sodium? Uh, reactors, the thorium reactors, or, or is it all, we're just going to build more uranium reactors? I think it's all uranium at the moment, isn't it? I mean, there's in, in Norway, where I live, I know they have, they boast about, they've got massive deposits of thorium here, mm -hmm. um, some of the biggest in the world, and they, they're kind of dreaming about um, developing those, but it's, it's never come to anything yet. I mean, there's, there's a whole Netflix series or something called occupied where, where um, they imagine in the future a Norwegian prime minister who decides to close down all the country's oil and gas production and go over to thorium nuclear power but um, Interesting. Uh, <laughs> but it doesn't happen yeah but yeah wouldn't that be great I mean it would be a safer form of energy wouldn't it I think thorium absolutely yeah well thanks guys thanks thanks Tom the thorium is also one of the um, amazing stories of the Second World War when uh, the the resistance in uh, Sweden managed to avoid that this heavy water was reaching Germany so that they could produce nuclear weapons. That's a, a, an amazing piece of history to read into. Um, that's too long ago that I read about it, but it's 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 a fascinating read for for anybody that's interested in it. Um, yeah. I see. Joshua um, as as a caller, so um, Joshua, please join. All right, so I'm going to risk being a fool internationally here, but has we really looked at hemp from a energy perspective in depth? Um, we know it does food, fuel, fiber, and medicine. We've known for a hundred years. Um, they outlawed it after World War I and the crash for oil and petroleum and the petrochemical industry. Those are known facts. Um, it's not going to be something overnight, but it's a lot faster than throwing up a nuclear facility, especially if we're going to rely on uranium again. Wow. Um, hemp? Sure on that one. Hemp is an energy crop. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? Um, so this is like produced in Bangladesh, I suppose. And then, um, yeah, I, I have no idea. I mean, this is, uh, I'm, I'm a bit, no, normally I have an answer to every question here. I'm thinking like, <laughs> whoa, I never thought about this one. Um, it's, uh, I, I, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't sound to me like, well, it's not the first thing that I would think of. Let's formulate it this way. What are, what are you thinking, uh, Alistair? 
I don't know, I just Googled it, actually. And it, uh, there are a few people who say, yeah, it could be. There are problems with drying it out, though, and the energy content of hemp may, be, it may not be as energy dense, say, as um, other, other renewables, like, um, I don't know, bagasse from, from um, sugarcane or, or, or wood pellets, perhaps. I, I don't know. Do, do, you, do you have any feelings about it? I have no idea. I'm, I'm, uh, first first thought that comes up, if you want to produce massive amounts of hemp, you need a lot of nature for that, and then you need uh, to transport it to the place where you need it, and that, it, it might be very bulky. Um, but this this is just, I don't know, I'm, 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 I'm puzzled with this question. Um, so I don't know, Joshua. Uh, it's it's uh, it's. Uh, I will I will start reading about it after this uh, <laughs> yeah, after this great. podcast. Uh, if if I get some some inspiration out of it, but I, I I what I do appreciate is the kind of creative thinking out of the box, and that is what I was referring earlier to. That when you get into a kind of uh, war situation, uh, that. Uh, Anything is possible. Uh, just, just look, for instance, about the huge pressure that was on the Allied forces to start uh, invading uh, France in '44 after they failed to do it in the summer of '43. The kind of creativity that uh, the Brits and and uh, together with the Canadians and and the Americans had in in in, in building the Pluto, the the the. The, the gas, uh, the, the oil line that they put under the ocean, um, uh, that they built these falsy tra- tanks, etc., and the kind of uh, fake army that they uh, that they uh, cre- created um, uh, in in uh, all all these kind of completely new creative things uh, that were done, or building an economy that could build a liberty ship every five hours, a huge ship every five hours. I mean, who would have thought that that would be possible? And that is when you when you push a democracy so far in a corner that they can no longer say, we can't do this. And when you unite democracies to fight a common evil together, uh, so much is possible, so much can be done. And Every morning that you open the newspaper and you see the horrors of what is what is what is created by Putin uh, in Ukraine, is a step further uh, to unite us in in taking action, and that and that includes uh, being open for new and creative solutions. So, um, if hemp is part of that deal, I'm the last one to to uh, to to say anything about it. But I I like the idea. I see Vanessa. Yeah. Um, please, uh, please join us. Uh, it's it's been at least a few hours, Ness. So I uh, I'm happy <laughs> to to have you again in the show. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't I couldn't keep away. I couldn't keep away. I heard you talking about I heard you talking about hemp. And um, while you're on the thing as well, I also googled, and apparently there's a cannabis cannabis seeds, um, which are often discarded, contain the plants oils, and they can be turned into fuel. Um, so and it looks like that could be a potential thing. Um, and um, I'm just reading here, sort of, um, yeah, so, so 97% of hemp oil was converted into biodiesel. So, yeah, right. biodiesel is a thing. Obviously, mm. it needs to be researched properly, but I just thought I'd just chip in there. That's, that's anyway. great. Thank you. And you'd have some very, um, very happy workers probably at those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, exactly. you, you're to- talking here to the only Dutchman in the world who's not an expert on cannabis, <laughs> so, which, which I clearly proved so with my say. previous answer. 
Yeah, we take your word for that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting conversation. So thanks very much. I'll hang Thank up you. now. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Ness. Hi, Don. Hi, Don. Hi, Don. The conversation took an interesting turn. I've, we've, I've actually been working with uh, a Norwegian firm, uh, Norenergy, uh, on some uh, energy, waste energy projects. And uh, we were looking at um, bagasse, as you mentioned before. And, you know, one of the challenges with, with hemp as a fuel or switchgrass as a fuel or, or ethanol as a, you know, growing corn to make ethanol is you're still not moving away from the greenhouse side of the equation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the hmm. the waste to energy uh, technology that they've developed is a um, it's a pyrolysis um, process. So you, you wind up with anaerobic combustion, and uh, you can generate some of those some of those fuels from some of those byproducts. Um, but again, I, I I don't know how you scale uh, a non greenhouse energy source. Um, that doesn't contribute to, uh, or, or that can supply like wind and solar and, and whatnot that we just can't get the mass. And, and if you mentioned hemp, you need a lot of nature. You have to grow a lot of plants, which means you have to clear a lot of forest to then grow plants yeah. to then burn. Um, it's just, it's just a, a huge challenge. And, uh, um, as Evelyn had mentioned earlier, uh, democracies can't move fast on anything because we, we all have to vote though. I, I prefer it to the alternative. Uh, but I, uh, on the hemp side, you know, there, if you're looking at that sort of um, energy crop, there are uh, Miscanthus gigantus is uh, a high energy density plant that, that would be um, kind of a, a, well, it's a higher density than, than hemp. But hemp, I think hemp as energy is probably it's one of its lesser lesser uses, uh, you know, as a food product and uh, as as fiber and whatnot. It's I think it's far more valuable. But I. Um, th there are things you can look into if you're looking to uh, to do some research on some of these other uh, kind of plants as energy solutions. Just <laughs> so since I was listening, I thought, oh, yeah, I know something about this. <laughs> so anyway, that's, <laughs> that's it. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks so much. That's really helpful, yeah, because yeah. then you also have all these problems of transport, don't you? I have enough people involved in a project in the south of France where they're trying to get a, a power plant built with, using farm waste and part of the problem there is just getting the waste from the fields to the to the place where it's going to be um turned into energy turned into electricity you've got to burn it you've got to dry it out you've got to transport it and all of these steps require a whole load of greenhouse gas emissions along the way generally because you've got to put it on trucks you've got to cut it down and it's um you know you're taking fertilizer away from the fields themselves so it's uh these are complicated issues aren't they yeah and it's and then on top of that you they will probably then need trucks again to put new fertilizer on the ground and that is also then uh, uh ending up with all kinds of phosphates etc that end up in the environment and nitrogen uh which which may not be uh, uh it's it 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 sounds like a very complicated way of doing it maybe just leave it on the land um, and and that might fertilize the ground again. So uh, let's uh, yeah. let's go back to to Joshua, our um, hemp expert. 
I would not call me a health expert. Um, (laughs) But I I will say that it is four times to seven times to 25 times better than doing it the way we're currently doing it with forest products. Um, It is more efficient than soy in regards to a food product. It is more efficient than cotton in regards to a a texture material product. These are all things that can be proven if you go back and look at the history. If you look at the history of our wars, back to our civil war, hemp was a key component. It was required to be grown in many counties. Many cities are named after it. Like, I'm not off base on this. The powers that currently be probably already know this, but they want all the white money in it and not the global South money getting involved so that we can actually do this right for a planet that is livable for everyone. Yeah. Uh, interesting, interesting point right. of view. Well, it's something we really have to, to, to read upon, to especially this, this yeah. North South kind of element. Yeah. We'll look into it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Josh, for giving this a, a very, very interesting, a great, interesting turn. Yeah, indeed, great turn on the um, on the call. Thank you. We'll look into it before. Yeah. Next week. So, so we we were we were looking at last week. Uh, it was it was International Women's Day. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, we've this changing away from hemp and um, and the Ukraine. You know, with Women's Day and uh, the um, uh, on Tuesday. So you know for climate change, women are on the front lines. They suffer more from the impacts of warming than men and are underrepresented in trying to fix the problems. Um, on Tuesday, Women's Day, uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said they bear the brunt of climate change and environmental degradation. So this year was marked by the slogan of gender equality today for a sustainable tomorrow. Um, and of course, he, his focus really has been on the pandemic. Women have suffered the brunt of extra domestic chores and childcare. Girls have been kept out of schools and jobs more than their boys' counterparts. Um, and Guterres said, you know, we cannot emerge from the pandemic with the clock spinning backwards on gender equality. We need to clock, turn the clock forward on women's rights. The time is now. Hmm. It reminds me of... It uh, reminds me of a picture I saw just days ago on, on Twitter. I think it was the latest World Economic Forum where they had a, a CEO meeting. And you see this long table with only white, gray men. There was not one woman there. There was there was no color around the table. And it's like, wow, this is, you know, the year 2022. And we're still... We we still have such a long way to go, and so it's 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 great that we have International uh, Women's Day, and maybe we should have more than once a year. And and Guterres also referred to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and uh, I, if there's if there's one picture that is burnt on, on on in my mind from from the past week is this this bombing of a maternity hospital in in Mariupol. Uh, which was, I think, yesterday, and and Guterres said that all conflicts from from Ukraine to Myanmar to Afghanistan or or from the Sahel to Yemen, uh, they extract the highest price from women and girls. And so far, history has not changed for for many many centuries. And that last part he didn't say, but I'm adding it to it. The first part was a quote, but in peacetime. Um, uh, the UN, uh, the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization, uh, women and girls do most of the world gathering uh, firewood, on collecting water, on preparing meals, uh, and uh, running farms. And 
that results in that they are just much more vulnerable to climate change. So, for instance, although men usually plow the fields and and drive the, the draught animals, it is women that do most of the work involved in sowing and weeding and fertilizing and, and harvesting the stable crops such as, as rice or wheat or maize. And that allows for uh, more than 90% of the rural poor's diet. And uh, that leaves less time for paid work or for education. And it also exposes them to more risks of attacks. And I think all these arguments are just like, uh, wow, there's just still so much to do in our Western societies uh, but uh, worldwide, in 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 the north, in the global south, uh, in in urban settings, in 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 rural settings, uh, there's just a a a massive massive steps that we still have to take. Yeah, but also this week, Patricia Espinosa, who's a former Mexican foreign minister and now is the UN's chief uh, climate. Um, change, uh, chief of climate change, uh, the executive secretary of UN climate change, made a plea for women, you know, she's, she's one of, she's in a job actually where, um, as the UN climate chief, it's been held by more women than men, since it was set up in 1991, there have been three women in that post, and two men um, since since the inauguration there. So um, if anybody's got any good suggestions of another woman to fill the job, um, she's stepping down in um, July after two, three-year terms, or indeed a, a well-qualified man, of course. Alex, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, this is a good example. More women than men fulfilling this job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so she said, you know, we must have women in all their diversity involved at all levels, from climate negotiations to boardrooms to forests and fields, especially in sectors and regions hit hard by the ravages of climate change. That's that was her message on Women's Day, um, and the you know the UN tracks the numbers of women involved in committees um, that negotiate climate um, climate change treaties, and um, they're not doing great because there were about thirty three percent in twenty twenty one were women, the same as twenty twenty. So it's two thirds are men, um, despite you know efforts to to promote diversity and to. And to you know, even giving out awards to to women-led initiatives such as solar power, or a woman architect in Lebanon who's making Bangkok more resilient to climate change. So, so efforts are underway. But every you know, March the eighth is a day to reflect on how you know, with women still not getting the the right voice that they need in these climate negotiations. Yeah, and if you if you open any newspaper today. Uh, and you look at, you know, after 2000 years uh, of uh, governance worldwide run by men, and you see what an absolute mess we made of this planet. I don't think any man has a right to say that uh, you should leave this in the hands of men because we do such a good job, because clearly we are not. So maybe it's time to um, to to realize that if you have a more inclusive way of decision making at any level and that is not only just uh, between men and women but but uh, every aspect of inclusiveness uh, i think you get uh, more harmonious and better uh, uh, societies in in many ways and it's it's um, just shutting out half of the population just on the basis of bad, of gender um, has never been a good idea 
and uh, and I think you it's it's proven over and over again that if you have any situation, whether in companies or other forms of governance, where uh, where it is more inclusive, you ultimately get um, better results. Um, and even if you find examples where it's not the case, there's of course the moral aspect uh, that uh, what's basically happening is is it's simply discrimination, and it's an old boys' network, which is literally boys keeping their own network. Um, but yeah, so looking back at this week, we there there. Of course, we have so many problems uh, on our plate now, but uh, there was hardly any attention for a report that would normally have been front pages on the news, but now you find it maybe somewhere on page 10, which was this report about the health of the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. And that may be much more vulnerable than previously thought to climate change. Since the, the early 2000s, it's now losing the ability to bounce back from droughts linked to climate change and from, from burning the forest by farmers to make way for cattle ranching and crops. And simply there is uh, resilience is great and, and, and wonderful, but there's a limit to the amount of resilience that you can have when you overstep the limits. And the, the Amazon is the lungs of the planet. It's, it's the world's biggest tropical forest. And, what researchers are, are saying now is that we are approaching a tipping point at which the forest might die off and be replaced by a savanna or grasslands. And they maybe can't give a date for that switch, but it, it would be catastrophic as a loss uh, for this planet and, and especially the wonders of biodiversity of, of plants and animals and from the, from the anacondas to the jaguars and the towering rainforest trees mm. but it's also it's about climate change forests store billions of tons of carbon the, the main uh, greenhouse gas and if you turn the amazon from a carbon sink to uh, uh, a a place that emits carbon and if you uh damage the amazon rainforest so much that you reduce what is called the water pump, which basically means that water that comes down the Amazon River from, from, let's say, Peru, it goes down the Amazon River. And then because there's so much forest, that water evaporates, is then transported more to the southwest, then falls again as rain. And, uh, and that gives uh, cities like Sao Paulo uh, its water. But if there's not enough cover and that water is just uh, staying in the Amazon and, and just all ends up in, in the Atlantic Ocean, then you get huge drought uh, further down south because this water pump effect is, is being destroyed. And these are just some of the, the many, many aspects uh, of, of destroying uh, the Amazon rainforest. Yeah, and of course, and uh, in Brazil and... Uh far-right president Jair Bolsonaro, the felling of the Amazon has quickened. Um, he's promoted loggers and um, farmers to burn down the forest to, 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 to promote the economy, you know, and uh, he's promised to limit the losses of the Amazon forest, but it, it hasn't happened. Um, and the, the rainforest has long been a place that could be a tipping point in the climate system, you know, once passed an abrupt change could happen. It's like the loss of ice in the Arctic. If it melts back to a certain extent, it's going to just disappear because it exposes darker water, which soaks up more and more of the sun's heat, and it just shrinks to, to nothing. 
at the end of the summer. So in the same way as the forest in the Amazon gets a little bit drier, small forest fires could suddenly become mega fires. Um, and then they say, the researchers here say there's been a three once-in-a-century droughts since the early 2000s, three of them that should come around only once in a century. So, you know, the rising temperatures are putting stress on these trees, on the forests, and it's losing resilience in areas close to the human land use. The remote parts of the forest are still, still doing okay, but it's, it's near, nearer the roads, nearer the farms, that the forests are under stress. You know, they, in the study they've used a very complicated system of satellites to check on the health of the forest from above, a spy-in-the-sky system that lets them figure out the biomass and the water content in the plant. It's, it's an impressive study. Yeah, and it's uh, talking about International Women's Day. If you, if you just look at the, the relative positive developments that were taking place under the previous um, uh, government in, in, um, in Brazil, and then well, when Bolsonaro um, took over, uh, it's, impress it's interesting to compare two things. If you look at the, the previous uh, uh, cabinet of all the ministers, and you put it next to a picture of uh, the Bolsonaro government, uh, you see that uh, a a very mixed, a very diverse group of ministers that was in charge in Brazil was actually taking much better care of the rainforest than uh, from the moment uh, that Bolsonaro took over, which is, uh, just look at those two pictures, it's amazing to compare, but it's it's all old, grey, white men again, and uh, they they clearly showed that they are not competent of taking care of the lungs of our planet. And um, I think that also the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, could add to uh, the pressures on the forest. It, it will push up food prices, so that makes it more attractive to clear land. Uh, and already in recent years, uh, speculators in Brazil are, are increasingly clearing forests for ranges in illegal land grabs. And uh, so it, high prices for beef and soy and other commodities uh, will boost the demand for, for uh, cheap land. Uh, and you need effective governance um, if, you, if you want to avoid the destroying of, of, of the, the Amazon rainforest. And uh, this government has not proven that it's capable of doing so. It's proven only to be capable of saying that they're going to do something about it. Um, and promising that, but they're not doing it. So this was also the week that some people finally found time to to dive into uh, the, the real IPCC report. Those are close to 4,000 uh, uh, pages and not uh, just a 35-page or 37-page, I believe, uh, synopsis for, for the policymakers. And um, so, yeah, in that context, do you have any, any news on IPCC, Alistair? Yeah, it's funny. It's kind of delayed, isn't it? I think this is the last section we're coming to in this uh, this podcast today. We've we've had a lot of great um, calls from questions from from listeners, so it's uh, we're we're running longer than normal. But this is this is this is stick with us because this is a good. This is I think was a good one about the um, people looking into the UN's intergovernmental panel panel on climate change report about the the impacts of climate change. You know, the Los Angeles Times had a fine editorial this week pointed out how the report includes for the very first time criticism of climate misinformation 
You know, we all know about this, the climate deniers, the skeptics, the oil industry that's sowing doubts about the science of climate change, which the IPCC says is unequivocal. It's unequivocal that human activities are causing, um, are cl causing global warming. And it's also at odds with the rising trend of concern about climate change among ordinary citizens around the, around the world. So I, I've downloaded all 3,700 pages plus of this report and searched for the word misinformation. It appears 14 times, and it's almost all, all of those are in a chapter about North America. <laughs> no not, surprises there. Well, I suppose no surprises. <laughs> but in a way, it's a pity that this is the first time that misinformation is being called out by these scientists. You know, they've, they're all, they've all of them been on the front lines of being accused of making stuff up um, wrongly. Um, uh, by skeptics and and some of the research into this subject goes back that they quote in the report goes back to the early 2000s so you know they're saying ex ex you know accelerating climate change hazards pose significant risks to the well-being of North American populations and so on and then addressing these risks may have been made or more urgent by delays due to misinformation about climate science that sowed uncertainty and impeded recognition of risk. Of course, you know Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement, saying that it wasn't um, that was that it was a hoax. Yeah, it's the same uh, former uh, president who uh, called Putin a genius on uh, the day that uh, that he invaded Ukraine. Famous last words, and the Republicans are now doing all they can to uh, divert attention uh, from that remark. Uh, and the way they manipulate uh, information to their voters, they will probably be successful in that, but I don't think they will be successful in convincing anybody else um, that he would not have uh, uh, said so. And um, yeah, so the report itself from, from, uh, from the IPCC says that there's no longer any doubt that climate change is caused by our activities, which is mainly the burning of fossil fuels uh, that release uh, greenhouse gases. And it, it calls the evidence uh, unequivocal. Gosh, I'm not a native speaker. But um, uh, so there's there's just zero doubt. And, uh, but many Americans, and then, uh, especially those Republicans, they doubt. They still doubt the reality of climate change, despite you you that you must be blind not to see it. There are more wildfires. There's these more powerful storms, and there's floods, and there's melting ice and droughts, etc. Um, and it's it's uh, it's amazing how how effective this campaign of misinformation, all being paid by the way by the fossil fuel companies, how effective. Uh, that has been, and the IPCC says that uh, rhetoric, misinformation, and politicization of science have contributed to misperceptions, polarization on the severity of impacts and risks to society, uh, indecision, and ultimately also delayed action, and that is, of course, exactly what these fossil fuel companies wanted, so they could keep selling uh, their uh, polluting product. So in North America, this uh, impedes uh, the adaptation efforts and inflates uh, climate risks. Um, uh, the report also says that the media is often at fault by giving too much weight to contrarians. And, it's, and I quote here, 
the journalistic norm of balance, which means giving equal right to climate scientists and contrarians in climate change reporting, that biases the coverage by unevenly amplifying certain messages that are not supported by science. And it also warns that a lot of social media discussion about climate change takes place in echo chambers, a social network amongst like-minded people in communities dominated, uh, dominated by a single view that contributes to polarization and the spread of misinformation. And just to add an example, I came a few days across, uh, a few days ago, I uh, Googled on uh, on Ukraine in combination with something else, or I searched on Ukraine in combination with something else. I forgot what I was searching for exactly, but I saw such a strange remark that I couldn't place. And then I looked at where it came from because it was a verified Twitter account. And that man had 1.2 million followers. Now, I have um, uh, on two different accounts about 450,000 real followers. And I was surprised that on the account that I was using, which has close to 300,000 followers, that uh, Twitter always shows you how many... uh, It says this account is also followed by whatever, so many thousands of your followers. In this case, not one single person (laughs) of his 1.2 million followers and then my uh, 300,000 followers were not matching. And that is odd. That is, even if I would Google Donald Trump, there would be people that would follow both me and would follow Donald Trump, although he's no longer uh, alive on Twitter. And... um, so I start looking at this guy, and then the the first fifty people or so were real. They were some uh, Republican uh, members of Congress, etc. But then after about number fifty, you only get fake accounts. Um, uh, Twitter allows a man with likely one point two billion fake accounts. There might be a few real ones in there, but you just see that if you click on it, you just quickly quickly recognize them as as completely fake. They have they have like two followers, they follow three people, uh, there's a strange picture and they've never sent out a tweet. And Twitter allows a guy like that to be verified and 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 becoming so huge on Twitter and people fall for the one point two uh, a million followers and for, for the fact that it's a verified account. And then when you talk about spreading misinformation, because all his tweets were absolute, complete nonsense and lies, uh, I think Twitter should do a better job. Um, I think I'm drifting away from the theme of today. So back to you, Alistair. Good idea. No, no, it's perfect misinformation. I mean, I, I get a lot of people tweeting at me that I'm a total idiot for um, <laughs> embracing the IPCC. <laughs> it means that you have an overlap to the other echo chamber. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> people point out to me all the time that the IPCC, nobody believes the IPCC, uh, which, of oh. course, it is policymakers around the world who have agreed this this text. They're from Saudi Arabia, they're from the United States, they're from every country around the world has signed off on these things. But then, yeah. you know, going back to the, the misinformation, Max Boykoff, who's one of the researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder, who's been doing this stuff for years, pointing out the, how the media give too much weight to contrarian, says, you know, the, the way of dealing with this is what he calls silver buckshot. There's no silver bullet that will will, will convince doubters of, of those or people who just don't want to think about the problem that you can convince them. You can't convince them with, for example, 
a big disaster like Superstorm Sandy isn't going to change people's minds. You know, referring to the the 2012 storm that hit the east coast of the United States that was portrayed by some as evidence of extreme events in a changing climate caused by um, caused by human activities. You know, such extremes always have some sort of historical precedent going back, but it's it's now what's happening is the the build up of the frequency of these events. You know, as we were saying earlier, the three once-in-a-century droughts in the Amazon so far this century. So Boykoff, Max Boykoff says you need to have a, a, a more nuanced approach when trying to communicate with skeptics. You know, don't get into tough things like flight shaming, telling them not to fly by planes because it's it's too confrontational. It's, he tries try to start with having a more open conversation. Is his is his recommendation to try and find a bit of common ground about the need to to you know hey we cut cut greenhouse gases that's going to improve people's health you know even if you don't believe in it you're going to cut pollution so hey <laughs> that's not a bad win either so you know yeah it's still nine million people a year that are dying on uh on on the pollution uh aspects in 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 the air which is directly related to climate change but it's it's yeah so if we take those measures and it turns out to be that uh, climate change is really a complete hoax, as Mr. Trump is, is saying, then at least we, we would have saved 9 million lives, which would be worth something. And uh, I know Max uh, quite well. I, m- I met him several times. There was actually a couple of years ago, We uh, he once invited me to give a speech at his institute. And then the next year we were uh, invited, that's now about three or four years ago, we were in, invited in Boulder in a... Um, radio or television studio so the, the two of us were interviewed there uh, nice. and uh, he, he's 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 a great expert he he's knows good, really, yeah. he yeah, really yeah. knows his stuff and he's he's a good uh, good communicator um so which was uh, which was fun it's always fun to be in, in boulder last night i was actually speaking to students in uh, in boulder about their career plans uh, nice. so I, uh, I i somehow stay connected to boulder even though i'm not going there uh, this year um we could go on for 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 many hours, but I'm 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 not sure. Uh, you, it's nearly bedtime where you are. I mean, I'm I'm just looking outside the blue sky here. But um, we, would you have time for one or two more questions, or is it uh, time for sure. a cup of tea and uh, bedtime? So we can. Sure, it's, it's so, bedtime's so, coming up, but I guess bedtime's coming up for a lot of our listeners as well. Perhaps I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, we we give them a sleepless night because they think it's impolite <laughs> to to click on the end room button, yes. <laughs> which is much appreciated. So, any anybody yes. out there that still has questions or comments or um, uh, anything else that you want to say, just hit this call in button. Uh, which is not yet possible for uh, the five people that I see that are listening on um, uh, on the website. But for the other people listening, you, uh, if you have a last question or comment, uh, you can do so now or you have to be forever silent. And I think that that is the case, which, uh, which I can imagine after all this time. Oh, there is, um, just when I want to close down, hi, Evelyn, there. It's great to hear you. Please, uh, please join us. You're still muted. And now somehow you're gone. I'll try it again. Take next caller. And then bottom right. I can't get you on board somehow. I don't know what's going on. Um, You keep switching to the left and to the right. Maybe Evelyn changed her mind. 
and doesn't want to comment. Okay. Um, thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, I thought this was mighty interesting. We are here every week on exactly the same time. So just block it in uh, your calendars every Thursday at uh, 3 o'clock Eastern time. But since quite a few listeners are from Europe, that is, uh, I guess, uh, 9 o'clock uh, European time. But for the next two weeks, starting this Sunday, North America will put the clock ahead one hour, whereas in Europe, we do that only in a bit more than two weeks from now. So in those two weeks, we have a five-hour time difference with uh, Central European time and a four-hour time difference with the United Kingdom. Um, and that is only for two weeks. So take care that you are uh, joining uh, at uh, the right moment and uh, with that and the first time I will be back is at least is certainly next Monday um, but uh, there might be uh, I likely will be back on back on the air somewhere in, in the weekend so just uh, just uh, keep uh, just put the notifications on thanks so much thanks so much Alistair last remarks no, no, that's great. Thanks, Alex. It's oh. um, great. We'll look into hemp this week as well. Okay, we'll uh, we'll look into the cannabis, into the hemp. I must say. Okay, <laughs> thanks so much, guys. Bye bye. <laughs> Take care. Bye now.